Welcome to episode 65, previously on the British Broadcasting Century podcast. In our tale of British Broadcasting's backstory, we've reached mid-March of 1923. The 30-strong BBCHQ has locked the doors of Magnet House for the last time and is headed for Savoy Hill. They're settling in, deciding what goes where. But who's keeping a log of all of this? Is anyone archiving anything? Do they have a room reserved for this? Maybe just a filing cabinet? Well, they might be archiving now, but were they then? This time, an insight into the world and history of BBC's archives from a former BBC archivist, in fact the only person with the title Sound Archivist that there's ever been at the BBC, Simon Rooks. My formative years, if you like, in the archives were with the Sound Archive. It's still my first love, but I've worked in most of the other collections, which include photographs, documents. I know you're familiar with uh, Cavisham. That was one of my teams. Also the Music Library, uh, which is the Sheet Music Library, and also the Gramophone Library, which we still call the Gram Library um, of commercial music. So all of those collections will make up, broadly speaking, the BBC archive. And when I'm being naughty, I like to say that the radio archives and the TV archives are only what went out. The really interesting stuff is in the document archives and the photos and the stuff that tells the story about how and why those programs came to be made. And for much of the time, there were no recordings, especially in the early days. The further you go back, the fewer recordings there are. The documents in Cavisham, for example, they are the only record of those programs. Things like a you know, drama, which tells you what music was played from commercial discs into that drama. And you can they will listen to those discs and get a feel for what the drama was like. And we'll try and answer that age-old, century-old nearly question. What is the earliest recording of a BBC broadcast? Hmm. We are delighted, of course, that somebody has been keeping an archive at all. And in our chronology of Ye Oldie Radio Story, we'll bring you late March 1923, a rundown of what was on, why, and why it was important. And that includes my favourite early broadcasting tale involving an archbishop, a bit of Schubert, and All Request Monday. All will be revealed. Welcome to the deepest dive into the history of archives since... Um, well, I'll have to check the archives to see when there was a previous one. Here on episode 65 of the British Broadcasting Century. Hello, hello, this is Paul Carenza calling. This is London Calling. Hello, hello, PK calling. How are you doing? Hope you're doing well. A bit of an unusual, different episode this time. It's almost entirely interview with a marvellous guest, Simon Rooks, former BBC archivist. This is, of course, a podcast nothing to do with the BBC, don't be mistaken. It's just me, Paul Carenza, entirely solo run, but co-funded by our very own licence fee of a sort. In other words, there's about a dozen of you on Patreon, and I thank you for it. If you would like to make that dozen a baker's dozen, in other words, add yourself to make it 13 people, then please do. Patreon.com slash Paul Carenza is where you will find behind-the-scenes videos and writings and even advanced extracts of my new novel about the BBC, Auntie and Uncle's The Bizarre Birth of the BBC. That is out soon. Not soon enough, I know. To this episode, which, as I say, is a little bit different. I had such a nice chat with Simon Rooks, the former BBC sound archivist, that we spoke for nearly an hour. I've trimmed, but then I've added again with clips and the like. So settle back, make yourself a cup of tea or two, and enjoy a fabulous exploration of what the BBC keeps, why, how, and who started it all in the first place. Plus, of course, I can't resist moving on our timeline just a little, so I'll also bring you what was on and at the BBC from March the 16th to March the 26th, 1923. That little 10-day period, the very first days at Savoy Hill. So more on all that later, but really this episode, the magic and mystery of 
and a brief history of the BBC's archives from a fabulous guest. I loved having a chat quite a while ago now, sorry for the long delay, with the marvellous Simon Rooks. I first joined the BBC in 89 and that was in the radio reference library. In those days, pre-internet days, programmes uh, were researched using books and information resources and all sorts of things like that. So we used to just do general research for uh, programmes of all kinds. Uh, uh, but I was only there a year or so and then I moved to the Sound Archive. And actually I'd never thought of moving, of working in the Sound Archive before, but the opportunity came up and I needed a job because I had a temporary job before. So. <laughs> and uh, joined the Sound Archive, which was absolutely fantastic. And I fell in love with that, really, and um, stayed in BBC Archives for the next 33 years. Uh, 33 years, you, that must mean a change of, of media, I would have thought. Does it go sort of every sort of different uh, type of thing you can record on, I imagine, in that time? Certainly in terms of media and going digital and using different formats. And obviously, it's not just the recordings, but it's the, the cataloguing. Um, so obviously, that was computerized as well at a point where we went from index cards to a computer catalog. And then, you know, the pace of change then, I think, you know, increased enormously um and you know organizational changes affected that as well when i first started in the sound archive we were part of radio so uh, and there wasn't a bbc archives department that didn't come until the sort of mid 90s or so uh, and it was still really the the vestiges of the kind of original organization that went back to the 30s really it was a we had a uh, two bits of it when i started there was the uh, current recordings and there was the sound library and the current recordings was where people Actually, it involved also the issuing of tape. Um, to you know, here is your here is your real quarter inch tape from a producer to to go and record your program on. The programs were delivered to that uh, team pre, if it was a pre recorded program, obviously pre um, TX. It was delivered, and you know they made sure that it was the right tape in the right box and that it was delivered to the con studio on a daily basis you know here are the programs for today to go out so there was that that current recordings bit and then there was the sound library which contained the archive but we were all part of radio and there was no kind of bbc archives organization that came in a bit later but all of those the tv archive the uh, the written archives at caversham and the music library they all grew up you know very differently very independently I think when I worked in the Sound Archive, I didn't even meet anyone from TV Archives for probably the first five years I worked there. Completely different. So Caversham, I went to Caversham um, earlier this year for the first uh, for the first of I hope many times. I think I was first person through the door after Christmas, and it was just like I, f I felt like I was the kid in the sweet shop, the kids in Willy Wonka uh, who rushed and uh, let me in. But obviously, we then get to the, the upstairs little room there, little library. What else is beyond that? Then is it sort of is it miles of I imagine some sort of Hogwarts? Well, so yes, at, at Caversham from the outside, from the front, it's a bit tardis like. From the front, it looks like a small bungalow. It was actually the originally the the Santa of the school that was um, uh, one time in the large, you know, stately home, which is now no longer owned by the BBC, um, where BBC monitoring used to be. But on the edge of that estate was this sanatorium, and it was just a, a, a bungalow. And that's what it looks like from the outside, quite suburban, quite domestic. But it goes back a long way. And then in the mid 80s, there was a large extension built uh, for to house the uh, ever-growing archives. Um, so yes, there are extensive storage there. I think, if I remember rightly, about five miles or more of, of 
shelving. <laughs> Capsham is, the, is essentially the, the best way of describing it. it. It's the working papers of the BBC. I, and if you like, it's a proper archive. It is a, it is a, it's an archive which is generated by the activity of the organisation, which is a kind of one definition of an, an archive. So it's not only scripts and programme paperwork, but it's also management and administration and HR and the property and buildings and all the all the activities, engineering, all the things that the BBC does. Um, you know, some of that paperwork in an organised or uh, sometimes accidental way uh, ends up in the archive, which tells the story of the whole organisation. And that's really, I think, the, I think the very first, the very earliest pieces of paper we have are a set of um, early accounts from the company in you know twenty two, mm. so we go we, we go all the way back. I had a look at that. Yes, yeah, it was lovely to see. Yeah, and we have wreath diaries. Vast majority of stuff has been generated from the BBC, but we have some things which come from outside the BBC. One, uh, probably the you know the most obvious uh, and um, and best example is wreath's diaries. So um, they came to us via the family, and that his diaries you know go from the first world war from the from the pre-bbc and post-bbc days when i was there some of my favorite little things to, to see reese diaries where there's a lovely little entry january of 23 where he'd been in post about three weeks and it just mentions that he listened to the radio for the first time <laughs> three weeks and you've not even tuned in yet but okay fine excellent Speaking of John Reith and his diary, it is thanks to that that we get one of my favourite stories about the early BBC. So this happened in the middle of March 1923. Perfect time to mention it because that is exactly where we're up to in our ongoing, very gradual, slow timeline of what happened at the early British Broadcasting Company. So three months into his job, one of John Reith's key interests was the religious side of broadcasting. If you see four episodes ago, we had our complete history of religious broadcasting, and you'll have heard that Reith had booked preachers that he generally liked, travelling or solo preachers like Woodbine Willie or Gypsy Smith. Gypsy Smith, in fact, had stayed with the Reith family when John was just a toddler. They were old friends and acquaintances, and those are the sort of people that he managed to get on the air, the mining of the contact book that so many of those early BBC pioneers were doing. So far, though, not much help from the organised church in terms of religious broadcasting. They were a little bit sceptical. So mid-March 1923, John Reith is lunching at the Caledonian Club with Francis Ironmonger. He's the editor of the Manchester Guardian, and he'll actually be the later first director of religion at the BBC. He's also there with the Archbishop of Canterbury's chaplain, Reverend George Bell, the go-between to get the Archbishop of Canterbury to meet John Reith. I wanted his cooperation in some sort of control for the religious side. He had never heard wireless, so with some diffidence I asked if he and his wife would dine with us next Monday. So the invitation went to the Archbishop on the day that the BBC left Magnet House, and the Archbishop and his wife would come to dinner the day that Reith unlocked Savoy Hill. Apparently, Reith was suffering through all of that weekend with terrible back pain, lumbago. I was most annoyed. He was highly embarrassed to be in such pain with the Archbishop of Canterbury and his wife coming to dinner. Sounds like a farce. So, Reith actually arranged to be on the phone when they knocked on the door so that Muriel, his wife, had to let them in and escort them to agonised, but covering it rather well, general manager of the BBC. Before dinner, I was standing talking to them with the wireless set at my back. It was a very fine mahogany sideboard radio set, so it blended in with the furniture. You wouldn't know it's there. 
and I pushed the switch without saying anything about it. The Archbishop and Mrs. Davidson got a great surprise. But as dinner progressed, the Archbishop of Canterbury didn't really like the music. He liked piano music, and there wasn't any on that evening. And so John Reith rang up Stanton Jeffries and got him to play Schubert's March Militaire. All request radio. The Archbishop was amazed and won over, and from then on helped Reith get religion right on the radio. The long discussions began about whether they could broadcast royal weddings and armistice services, and indeed ultimately a church service on the BBC. It would take the best part of a year before they could agree what sort of church service to broadcast. Anyway, more from late March 1923 towards the end of this podcast, but let's go back to that most sacred of secular buildings that I can think of, the BBC archives. So I'll hand over to Simon Rooks for an extended rundown of what was stored, when and why. In the 20s, of course, the first thing to remember is nothing was recorded. This was the BBC Broadcasting Company, the incorporation. Um, it broadcast programmes. It didn't record things. And so there was no recording in the 20s of BBC output. A combination of many things, I think. You know, there was, there was no need, there was no requirement, there was no desire, uh, and most importantly, there was no equipment. Now, Simon tells me the earliest recording that you can hear that's of an event broadcast by the BBC is 23rd of April 1924, King George V's opening speech at the British Empire Exhibition. On this day, my people in all parts of the world join to celebrate their unity and to draw closer the common ties which hold them together. Now, I chose my words carefully there. You see, those words were broadcast on the BBC, but that was not a BBC recording. The BBC couldn't record anything at that point. Now and then, a plucky listener may have had the kit to record a broadcast. Just a handful of those stuck around, these off-air recordings. So this one is thanks to a listener at the time and the enterprising work of a BBC man behind the Scrapbook series. It was a long-running historical year-by-year retrospective programme. It's thanks to one of our listeners. Telling us more, it's creator Leslie Bailey. We had done a scrapbook of the Wembley year in which we said that there was no recording at all of the King opening that exhibition because recordings weren't done in those days. Uh, And this lady said we were wrong because her husband uh, was a technician who had himself privately recorded the King in his own back porch on his own machine and so she had a record of the king and she very kindly sent us a copy of this and the next time we did a scrapbook of that year we put that record in. Record companies like HMV or Columbia occasionally recorded and released things that sometimes overlap with what the BBC was broadcasting like for example 1924's Nightingale and Cello. So actually that became a phenomenon and HMV recorded it and released it as a commercial disc and and it was also repeated for a number of years so the original one in 24 was it there's no bbc recording of that but i don't know off the top of my head whether it was you know the first one or the you know once it become really popular hmv saw an opportunity to release it as a commercial disc this hmv recording is from 1927 the fourth installment cello and nightingale with a vengeance the BBC did not have any equipment to record a broadcast until 1931. So when people say, well, why didn't they keep any recordings? Well, that's one reason. They, yeah, Nobody had acquired a recording machine to do that. That changed in 31 when a Blattner phone was acquired. And then, then quite soon after that, 
several. Um, I think there were six at one time before they moved on to other methods. The earliest surviving BBC recording in-house of an actual BBC broadcast, in other words, recorded on an actual BBC device, was a speech from the Prince of Wales, that's Edward VIII to you and me, on trade with Argentina in 1931. If you have someone in to record a talk and you want to play that talk out at a different time, make a recording of it and you can do that rather than have a live thing. So, you know, the, the kind of practical reason for making recordings was a, was a driver, definitely. A year later, one producer had a wonderful idea, though, to bring back to life some of the lost broadcasts from the lost decade of the 1920s. I think one thing that I think is really worth talking about, which for me is a real archiving landmark, is the end of Savoy Hill. In 1932, it was the 10th anniversary of the BBC, and there was a will to celebrate that. But how, how do you represent the first 10 years of broadcasting if you don't have any recordings. So a brilliant radio pioneer, uh, Lance Siverking, uh, wrote and produced The End of Savoy Hill, which was a sort of mammoth production. They made recordings. They got people in who had recorded in the 20s and got them to reread bits of what they'd done in the 20s. And, it, and it's only from that that we have some of those representations of 1920s broadcast. Now, Producers are very naughty, and when they use those in archive programs, they usually don't say that it's a rereading. And it's only from that program that we have Vita Sachs for West, for example. When I first told my friends that I was going to Persia, I discovered that to most of them, Persia was little more than a vague romantic name. And actually, in the Radio Times, in the billing for the end of Savoy Hill, it does say a number of special recordings by Blackmaphone. Uh, it says that in the billing. Uh, and that was an amazing thing. And without, without that, we wouldn't have any of those, you know, little snippets. You've got like John Reith reads uh, the end of the, announced the end of the general strike in Jerusalem, for example. And did those feet in ancient time walk upon England mountains green? Or you've got Reverend John Mayo's first religious broadcast from mm-hmm. uh, 22, whatever. I have just come from my church in Whitechapel. Those people had come in individually, separately, presumably. <laughs> And yeah, to, yeah, their bit. They're not all there together on that one. No, no, no. Yeah, the recordings were made. I mean, fantastically inventive and creative and way of doing stuff by Silver King there. How long does it take to go to Paddockwood, mister? About an hour, Dad. And also the beginnings in the 30s of recording trucks, being able to take a truck with a recording machine and, and cut a disc. Yeah, that came in the 30s. So, you know, making recordings, you were able to be more mobile and and make recordings in places other than the studio. The first recording van in 1934 went hop-picking in Kent, ending with this pub sing-song, Just a Song at Twilight. Well, how about this? A year later, 1935. I think this is the first retake on record. Literally, the first one on a BBC record. As two dockers gave the BBC sound recordist a few options, staging a conversation about loading a ship. And the whole posterity thing does come in and comes in quite quickly, but it's a kind of combination of things. No one actually sat there one day and said, right, let's create an archive. 
so it, it was sort of rather organic in in many ways you know it's kind of well you know these recordings are being made and the famous kind of you know creation myth if you like and it's not a myth actually but the beginning of the archival collection if you like is, is that people who were there in the mid-30s you know were, were sitting on all these recording so i took part in a program made by sean street a few years ago about mari slocum i think the records themselves are the best answer in which ordinary people tell their stories the first sound archive librarian although that wasn't the title then but she was there on that day with tim eckersley the nephew of pp they were asked to just basically clear up uh, piles of recordings and and they were identifying you know recordings at that time so this was in 37 so they were you know finding recordings of Churchill in the in the 30s and H.G. Wells and G.K. Chesterton and people like that and they're saying you know we need to be keeping some of these so from the recordings that have been made for purely kind of practical and immediate broadcasting purposes and a bit of time shifting they started to filter out those which both of kind of historical importance, but also to be used again. And actually the word archive wasn't wasn't really used at all until much, much later. It was the sound library. You had the recording, recorded programs department. And that department headed up by a chap called Linton Fletcher, who's quite an interesting guy, actually. You might come back to him in a moment. But recorded programs department. So they were in charge of not the actual engineering side of making a recording, but it more about why make a recording and where and, you know, scheduling and the logistics of it. They were the department that were in charge of making the recordings happen. That's the department that then amassed these recordings. And Linton Fletcher was the um, recorded programs executive. He was Maurice Locum and Tim Eckersley's boss who asked them to tidy this stuff up. And that's how it began, really. So within the recorded programs department, the library, what we know as the Sound Archive, but it was called the Permanent Library. So that's basically, they are the selected recordings that were going to be kept. It was called the Permanent Library. So it seems to start with essentially mess that needs tidying up. Yeah, yeah. The way of, um, my wife's got this book, um, the Marie Kondo, Spark Joy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so it's the decluttering trend. Well, yeah, and that would work as one of the archival selection criteria. Does this spark joy? Yeah. There's also the um, the Empire Service, I suppose, the people, they've got to do the time shifting of when, when when's Australia awake and all that sort of stuff. Exactly. Very practical reason for making a recording. Minister of Trade is coming in to do a very dull talk about Argentinian corned beef or something, and they want to play that to Australia, then, you know, they're not going to get the minister in at two o'clock in the morning. So yeah, very practical. Linton Fletcher is an interesting guy because he, one of the unsung hero actually, and quite rightly, Mari Slocum is kind of held up as, and she was absolutely a, a formative force and, and was until she retired in the seventies. Linton Fletcher was a really influential person in the, in those early days. Fortunately, we know quite a lot about how the people in the early days, Fletcher and, and Mari Slocum were doing things because in 1942, there was a three-part series broadcast called You Have Been Listening to a Recording, and it was about the work of the recorded programs department. Whether they come in idle curiosity or as serious students of history, they will be able to recreate for themselves, at least in sound, a reasonably authentic picture of a good many of the scenes and events that we are living through now. 
Fletcher and Slocum talk about the recordings they have uh, and also really interesting for me, I think hopefully for other people, why they were making recordings. And Fletcher summarizes really as a uh, as three things, um, a question of time, a question of place and a question of history. And, and the question of time is that time shifting make a recording now that we want to play out at another time, a question of location. So to be able to do things outside the studio. And of course, in wartime, that accelerated enormously and technology advanced very quickly and recording trucks got smaller. And eventually the war correspondents had, you know, portable disc cutter machines called the midget, which they could take out very close to the front line. I mean, they weighed 60 pounds. I mean, they were not tiny, but but they were more portable than anything else. I saw one recently at the Radio Museum down in Stansett. Yes. I watch it, and um, it was one mm. of those that was on the D-Day beaches. And you, yeah. And weighty, yeah, you think. Yeah, you know, well, it, does. It's, it was yeah. Quite, a, quite a thing. And that was the recording machine that um, both uh, Richard Dimbleby and Winford Vaughan Thomas took up in, in bombers and recorded, you know, on bombing missions. And the skipper's just warned us in our intercom, our searchlights below... They're trying to light us up against the crowd and make us an easy prey for the night fighter. Um, so we had Fletcher talking about time, time shifting, place, location, but also history. In that 1942 program, you know, they are absolutely talking about the importance of what they are doing and the importance of, especially in wartime, making those recordings and thinking about people a hundred years hence, listening to those recordings and getting some idea of the life and times that they were living through then. So, yeah, and it's I think it's amazing that we've got those recordings. The archivists are archiving themselves and recording themselves, and we've got them talking about. And also, actually, very important then that they were talking about recording the voices of ordinary people. It's not just the great and the good and those who get to broadcast programs, and it was very much a kind of egalitarian aspect to it in those days um and you know that's they were saying that and it's evidenced by the recordings that were selected compared to the the volume of programs that went out the the selection that ended up in the permanent library was was tiny really before i was in into this whole area but the public facing area of this i suppose was things like those doctor who episodes that weren't kept or those dan's army episodes that weren't kept <laughs> actually it's more back then of course looking at it it seems to be more about it's not no one was thinking let's not keep these you're just thinking no let, let's save these let's save wasn't that yeah back when, with, with when we had vhs's and things to go why didn't we record everything well it wasn't that wasn't like that back then was it yeah, I mean, exactly. I mean, I, you know, the BBC gets more, quite rightly, gets more scrutiny about, you know, what's not there. And, you know, and BBC, when all aspects of BBC gets more scrutiny than, than any other broadcaster, but it's the same in any other broadcaster that all the ITV companies, exactly the same, you know, in terms of um, what was kept and what was not kept. Just practically, it was never the intention to try and keep everything you know first of all not everything was being recorded for many decades um most broadcasts were live and they were never recorded so there wasn't even an opportunity to say shall we keep that recording yeah. but when a method and a, a sort of methodology was put in place to actually you know make recordings and in those early days you know the recordings were acetate recordings on disc they could re- they were temporary they could be played you know i don't know 10 times maybe and then they would wear out so to the selection process or to say right we're going to keep that program or quite often actually keep part of that program or an extract or just that interview from that program or something and those extracts were then processed onto vinyl discs essentially by external companies hmv or decca um, and a number of those copies were kept and in my day certainly 
because they were we were still actively using them very much in when I started and we had on the shelf we would have quite often um you know four or five copies a b c d um and a copy would be the last one that would be lent you'd always go to the shelf and pick off one of the others and the a copy was you know keep that back because hopefully it won't be so scratched as the other ones yeah. so selection highly tentative because and it's also a question of space these things take up a lot of space yeah. the resources to do it the resources to do the selection the cataloging the, the the cost of getting them processed this is spending bbc money outside the organization to a record company to get them pressed so all of those things as ever are a factor in what was kept so i think it's amazing what was kept you look back now you know when you got teenagers you know, i sound like a grumpy old man but documenting every second of their lives on instagram and yeah i was looking the other day at the alexandra palace footage when the, the when t- television was launched yeah it, it, it feels like a minor miracle that we're looking back that far really and of course those those images that we have from Mary pally in the early days of tv you know they are not recordings of tv broadcasts that is someone with a film camera recording what was going on in that tv studio <laughs> there's a subtle difference there yeah there was no technology to record from a tv camera and in the early days of tv you know which is they would point a film camera at a tv monitor and that's how we have the earliest tv program recordings from the earliest things that exist from the very late 40s i think well i remember as a child though i must have been a 10 or 11 i remember distinctly wanting to record a thing we had no blank vhs cassettes left we were going out for the evening, and I remember setting up my dad's video camera on a tripod in front of the telly yes. and recording on a small video cassette whatever the half-hour sitcom was that I yeah. could not do without because, of course, nowadays you go, I'll catch it on iPlayer. No, back then, yeah. you know, there's no ch- not necessarily a chance to be repeated. Oh, you, were, you were recreating 1940s-style um, tele- tele-recording. Way ahead of way, way behind my time. Way ahead of my time. Well, yeah, kind of. The other decades out of it. I suppose after that, it develops from there. And it's it's sort of exponential, uh, I, I guess. You know, as as time goes on, more more gets kept. Broadly, you know, we can look at the period really a process which started in the late forties. Really, I suppose at the end of the war. Obviously, you know, the number of recordings ex- just increased enormously during the war with all the stuff coming in. And North Africa or Italy, discs would be recorded, sent back to, say, Cairo, and then they would be transmitted back to Broadcasting House and recorded as they came in. So all these things. So that was massive backlogs after the war. But the basic approach of having a team of selectors, they selected. They went through the Radio Times. They would select things. Well, I have this and not that, or that, well, I'll have that particular interview from Woman's Hour, but not the whole programme, because the whole programme would be a one 10-inch reel. The Today programme, for example, would would have been, you know, is three hours, so it would be a you know, minimum of, of three 10-inch reels of quarter-inch tape. You have that going onto the shelf every day, you soon run out of space. <laughs> so, yeah. so it was all highly selective, highly tentative, but gradually more and more programmes were kept. Certainly in my early days in the, in the sort of end of the 80s and early 90s, there was a, there were massive backlogs of programs which have been retained, not actively. This is this gets a bit arcane, really, but not actively selected for the archive. But they had been not destroyed. Okay, <laughs> they, right. they, but they were massive, and they hadn't been catalogued or anything. But there was a kind of growing sort of feel that you know we need to be keeping more stuff. One of the the kind of big things that happened in the eighties was the wholesale keeping of uh, news programs. So all the as we turn them the the new sequence programs, so the, all the Radio Four lots, so Today and World at One and PM and the World Tonight and the Financial World Tonight and the World This Weekend, 
and Newsbeat actually latterly and I did it I can't evidence this but on senses a kind of reluctance to oh Newsbeat that's Radio 1 oh well okay <laughs> but but through the 80s and what didn't all happen on one day but gradually more and more of those programs were kept but the 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 reason we were able to keep them was that we kept them on cassette on audio cassette now people might know I mean they're that's a lower quality recording. That is, that is, you know, audio cassettes, uh, the familiar audio cassettes to us or us of a certain age, you know, that's a lower quality audio. That is not a, that's not a, a recording quality used for uh, broadcast. However, that was the only practical way that we could keep that. And it was a bit of a compromise at that time, you know, that to say, right, we can accept these are speech programs. There is a de- growing demand to reuse bits of those speech programs within themselves. And, you know, this is what the prime minister said last year. We need to get that out. We couldn't rely on all that being selected on an individual basis. So we started keeping all of those programs every day. And the only way to do it was on audio cassette you wouldn't keep a Radio 3 broadcast concert on an audio cassette. That would not be quality or a drama or any, you know, any almost any other program. But those programs we started keeping. So that made a huge difference to what we were able to do in terms of providing a service to news programs and to any kind of factual programs that wanted to dip back. People might find this surprising. I don't know. But the selectors, certainly into the 80s and 90s, they didn't necessarily have all of the programs available to even select. So pre-recorded programs will come into the current recordings area before transmission, and we would, would retain them afterwards. But live programs didn't always come. They were recorded in the studios. Producers kept them in their own offices. So part of what the selectors were doing, if they wanted something from a live program, they would have to kind of beg, borrow, or steal, and and plead with producers. You know, can we borrow that cassette, or can you make a copy of it, or so we can. So that's why we have really so little of the daily DJ programs, your Radio One, Radio Two. There's actually comparatively little of that. I think it's quite an interesting conceptual thing, actually. As I say, the word archive was not really used until really quite late. In fact, I, I was the first person to have, have the title of sound archivist. It didn't even last very long. I mean, about nine years before there was another reorganization and the job titles changed again, but no one was called sound archivist. But what there was, it was, this is maybe sounds like a subtle difference. It was a sound library. It was a library of sound. And, and you know, right back from the early days, the intention was to build a library of sounds that were useful for future program making. So it included having examples of this person's voice. And sometimes, you know, it was, well, we're not going to make a, a, a permanent recording of that person speaking because we already have a, a, an example of their voice, no matter what they're talking about. So that was part of the thing. So it was a library of sounds, um, including sound effects and actuality recordings. There was no real attempt to say, right, this is a comprehensive archive or even to try and represent every aspect of broadcasting. It's an entirely different concept. And that didn't really come in until very, very late where we had the ability, when broadcasting went completely digital and in this was in the late 2000s, 2008, broadcasting, radio broadcasting had gone completely digital and we were able to tap in directly to the playout system. So essentially we had the ability to record all of the certainly national radio networks every day and we had complete access to all the recordings and we could have a much more broader 
selection. But still, the, the, the motivations are still quite practical. So going back a bit to the early 2000s, you had Radio 7, BBC 7, which is now 4 Extra, and 6 Music in particular. Also, 1 Extra started around that time as well. But in particular, BBC 7 and 6 Music, they had very specific archive briefs. And actually, you know, 4 Extra is, is, is a bit more of a mix now. But certainly when it started, BBC 7 was very much an archive station. And I, I was in some of those very early meetings in 2000. And, and the question was, do we have enough archive to sustain this right, wow. you know, over a period? And at that time is when we started to do the first of our kind of large, larger scale digitization projects. So what we did was we would do some of the oldest recordings that we had on disc and all that sort of thing. So they would come to us, okay, in four weeks time, this is what we're going to, this is what we want to schedule. So we would then digitize that from tape and then is banked in BC7. So that was very practical. And at that time as well that's when we really made the the kind of clear decision to say right we are going to keep all drama all comedy all readings only around 2000 it seems quite recent a lot of that stuff had been kept and was retained but it wasn't officially the archive and and safe from producers coming in and borrowing the master and doing their own edit <laughs> a couple of channels that, that are particularly after those things constantly and need, need feeding well it goes back yeah. to cecil lewis's his first book on broadcasting saying the microphone the most voracious monster just need to constantly keep feeding it and yeah bbc7 you need that yeah you need to feed it yeah too right yeah i've got a cassette here i found the other day of um one of the few original shows they made for, for seven i think spanking new on seven i was one of the comedians oh, right. on that and they sent us the cassette yeah i have no idea it's, i've not got a cassette player in the house so i don't know how to play it but there you are Ah, thank you, Simon Rooks. More from him before we go this episode. But let's do our timeline of 1923. Uh, well, March the 17th, Olive May begins work. She's the switchboard operator extraordinaire, stays for years, and she's the go-between, really, between the outside world and John Reith. She meets the love of her life on that switchboard, engineer Cecil Bottle, another BBC lifer. So she joined on the Saturday, but then her first day of work really was at Savoy Hill on Monday morning, the 19th, the day the Archbishop came to tea. And more employees were arriving then as they moved into Savoy Hill. It suddenly started expanding exponentially. The commissionaire, Mr. Plater, he began on day one. His first job, fix a card to the front door until the brass plate arrived. It read, unusually, British Wireless Broadcasting Company, second floor. British Wireless Broadcasting Company. Oh yes, the famous BWBC. He was reluctant to take down his card when the brass plate arrived. Maybe he quite liked adding the word wireless. Day one, task one for the staff then, was to make the tea, except the tea point wasn't ready yet. Thankfully, the initial tea cabinet on Goswell Road came to the rescue. Two days after that, then, let's look at the press. Here's a thing that we trailed a couple of episodes ago. You might remember February the 23rd, there's this competition to win a radio. You suggest a programme schedule. It was judged by Arthur Burroughs and possibly then nicked by him too, because he was director of programmes. But on March the 21st, the results in the Pall Mall Gazette. First prize, a geophone three-valve cabinet set with approximate range of 100 miles is awarded to Leonard Dewing of Oxford Gardens, London. The first prize winner suggested this schedule, children's stories. Nothing gruesome therein. We find that the gruesome, together with the excitement of wireless, disturbs night rest of lively and brainy children. Uh, then part songs, three or four voices, 
Thirdly, simple explanation by a chef or cook of the cookery ideas and dishes of continental people before arrival of husband. Interesting suggestion, Leonard Dewing. wonder what Mrs Dewing makes of that. Fourthly, lecture of decent authority of life habits of common creatures and insects, microbe hosts of various diseases, authority on valves like Fleming or Death Watch Beetle and the like. Fifthly, entertain at the piano, Margaret Cooper style. Sixthly, dance music, jazz stuff. Well, Reith would disagree with that. Seven, really noisy brass band type of music, either dance or semi-classical, understood by the ordinary people. Eighthly, stock exchange, abnormal movements of shares, etc., results of leading cases and courts, football finals, semi-finals, etc., and racing or boxing events. Ninthly, weekdays, any popular artist, Sundays, old English hymns, to organ or choir, or semi-religious songs by a good artist. Tenthly, English, Scotch, Irish, Welsh, American airs and tunes, either voice or instrumental music, e.g. Evening allotted to its own type of music. Or eleventhly, sack the lot and give a good opera or popular musical play, pantomime, etc. when available. I think he means sack the lot of ideas, not sack all of the staff. And the runner-up was D. Jones of St. James Road, Holloway. He wins a Geophone number 1 crystal set with approximate range of 35 miles. And a huge thank you, as ever, to Andrew Barker, our newspaper detective, for mining the press and bringing us those. March the 22nd, then, Frank Hook went from being pianist with the BBC Wireless Orchestra to full-time running the BBC Music Library, shoot music and so on. Oh, is this the start of an archive? Well, not quite. It's in daily use. This was the beginning, though, of the laundry baskets we mentioned last episode. Now, the laundry baskets themselves being sent around all these stations, they would deteriorate. On one occasion, a station director opened a laundry basket to discover laundry and not records or piano music. So after that, instead of laundry baskets, they used leather trunks, but still called them the laundry baskets. Also on that day of March 22nd, uh, the final board members joined the BBC. You've got Sir William Bull, Reith's old boss back in politics. And in fact, William Bull helped Reith get the general manager job by pointing him towards the advertisement in the trade press. You've got Whit Burnham, MD of Burndet, one of the smaller wireless firms. We're going to have an episode about Burnham soon. Been in touch with his great-grandniece, I believe she is. Proposed but not elected for the BBC board included radio amateur Major H.S. Walker. Trying to get the radio hams on board, but uh, no, he didn't make it. He was later put in charge of BBC workshops under Peter Eckersley. Lastly then, for this chunk of our timeline, March the 25th, Woodbine Willie, we mentioned him already, he was on the air broadcasting some religious sermons, and then the day after that, March the 26th, there was the final day of the ideal home exhibition broadcasts that had been going on throughout the month of March. It was also the day of the first proper daily weather report on the air, and it was also the day that Major Arthur Corbett Smith, a rather eccentric station director, joined Cardiff. Now, the next two episodes of this podcast will cover both of those things in a little bit more depth. That's the Daily Weather Report and the unusual character of Arthur Corbett Smith. Stay tuned to this frequency and more episodes will follow. That's that for the timeline, so let's just briefly return to our guest for this week. Some final archival thoughts from Simon Rooks. So nowadays, do we reach the point then that everything is recorded somehow, somewhere? Yeah, pretty much. Although, and increasingly, local radio sort of came on later. And local radio is a bit of a kind of sorry tale because it was never, never a kind of officially in the remit of the central archives kind of thing. So it's been very patchy over the years. Um and more reliant on if there was someone particularly interested in a local radio station in doing that, they would keep really good collections. And quite often they ended up in local county record offices and that sort of thing. So local radio is quite a a patchy history, but more of that is now kept for much, much longer. It wasn't until 1981 that there was a requirement in the charter to keep an archive. 
So before that, it was just kind of, this seems like a good idea and shall we do it? And, but there's no compulsion. And it was uh, Asa Briggs, people will know as a the historian of broadcasting. He uh, chaired the advisory committee on archives, which reported in 79, which basically said, to paraphrase, it's a mess. <laughs> there's not enough standardization and consistency and sort of structure around archiving in the BBC generally. And that led to the, the first time it was put into the charter. Still, the charter still doesn't say that much, actually. It's a bit brief, but it does give a validation to you know, what the archive does in terms of its, uh, its importance. Well, what a thing it is. We're lucky to have it. So, so thank you for tending it for so long, this, this shepherd of, of stuff. Shepherd of stuff. I loved it. I mean, as with any job, there's some downs and stresses and strains and all that. But, you know, I, there, I didn't think there was ever a day where I didn't actually think this is amazing stuff we're looking after and it's really important to do it. Thank you to Simon Rooks, a marvellous guest. I'm sure you agree. Quite illuminating. There's a lot of dust now blowing around the room after looking in the archives there. I must, this episode, thank the London Sound Survey website. That's the work of the great late Ian Rawls. You can find their clips and story at soundsurvey.org.uk. That and many other links are in the show notes. Thank you for listening and thank you for sharing this podcast if you do. Rating us and review us if you've done that. It'll be a marvellous thing. And do stick around because next time the daily weather reports begin and the first SOS broadcasts. The British Broadcasting Century podcast is presented and produced solely by me, Paul Carenza. Original music is by Will Farmer. Archive material is so old it's generally public domain, but BBC content is used with kind permission. BBC copyright content reproduced courtesy of the British Broadcasting Corporation. All rights are reserved. Stay informed, educated and entertained. Join us next time for weather and the SOS broadcasts at the other end of this British Broadcasting Century. <laughs>